This is episode number 281. How can you help a person who has an addiction? With Leslie and Lindsay Glass. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your full potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being in regard to our work, and that is if our work has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our weekly conversation that takes place every single Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, where we explore the connection between one's personal narrative and the topics of grief, appreciation, resilience, and many other topics. If you feel that this is of interest to you, please consider joining us live through Facebook or LinkedIn on any given Friday at 10.45 a.m. Central Time, where you can share your own perspectives and your own opinions as it relates to each and every single conversation. Now, let's get back to the show. Lindsay and Leslie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. No, thank you. Thanks for being a part of it. And and thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I think this is a topic that I I hope many of us will be able to relate to. I I think there are different forms of addictions. And I, I found it fascinating sometimes when I would have conversations with people who, for example, one of my friends, he has gone through an addiction, alcohol-related addiction, as as the two of you um, specialize in this in the space. But I found myself that when I hear him talk about his own experience, there's so much of it that I can relate to to my own life, not having had alcohol addictions, addictions to social media, addiction to my phone, addiction to, I mean, even people, even wanting not not wanting to be addicted, but simultaneously being addicted to this concept that okay, I have to be in some form of relationship, I have to be in some form of X, Y, and Z. And I found that to be a such a interesting topic, because in my opinion, I think there's probably always an addiction that exists within our lives, whether or not it is harmful, or whether or not it is something that is contributing towards the well being, that might be a conversation for a different, different topic or different time, or maybe not, maybe this is something that we'll choose to explore. But I'm curious to hear, and maybe this is the best way that we can start off this conversation as far as how do the addictive behaviors even form? Where does that begin? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start <laughs> and take this one. Of course. That's okay. <laughs> so um, it's a really great question. And I think there is a combination of nurture and nature to this kind of thing. I was a teenage addict. Um, that is part of my story. So this began really, really early for me. And I think it's a combination of, first of all, I think in this society, and I grew up in New York City in the 80s and 90s, um, what people thought was okay is a little bit different 
than what they think now. So we were coming out of, you know, the fast 80s, the money-making 90s, and there was a culture of excess in New York City. So I do believe that I was influenced by what I was seeing around me, but I also think I had some natural tendencies uh, towards addictive behavior that once I started to experiment just took off. Mm. Leslie, what was it like for you to be a parent in that role? Well, I, I think this happened uh, 20 years ago. So, but I think that parents are exactly the same now. They don't know what's going on or what to do. So for me, it was like, what, there is something happening to my child, something wrong with my child, something that's changing, but not understanding, is this something that, is this a, a, a teenage angst thing that all kids are going through, or is this something different? And I think that what happens, in, and so for me, I was always looking for a medical reason. Is my daughter ill? Is there something wrong with her? But then, of course, doctors don't ask the right questions. So, you know, they kept saying she's fine. There's nothing wrong. So I think parents are not well enough informed to know when their kids are, are uh, in trouble, whether it's, whether it's a, a mental issue or a substance issue, what is it that's happening and what can parents do about it? So in my case, I was desperate. I was lost. I kept trying to talk to my child, but not knowing exactly what to do or how to help. Mm -hmm. So can I add something really quick? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other thing, and this is not, it's not a criticism or anything like that, but we had a big culture of drinking through traditionally throughout our family. Mm -hmm. I think um, there was it wasn't necessarily anyone looked at and thought this is a problem. I think there was that too. I think there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of things wrong with me. I'm not saying that at all, but the first guess in the nineties was not alcohol is the problem. Cause yeah. it was something kind of everybody was doing. I think we feel differently now, but. Well, I, I would also add to that that drinking is part of the American culture, and it's not yeah. only the American culture, but what I would say with the British culture or uh, the Russian culture, uh, people do not think that, that there is anything wrong with drinking, and they also think that it's part of coming of age. Certainly in this country, drinking in college is not only accepted, it's encouraged. So yeah. um, alcohol is the number one addiction in the world. I mean, people don't know it's the king of all addictions. So mm -hmm. of course, you know, starting in the fifties when co cocktails became part of every American family's day, the cocktail hour, and, and it has grown and grown and grown so that alcohol is part of almost every uh, celebration. So we, we do need to connect nurture uh, culture and all of those, uh, all of those other components. But you know, you asked how it begins. Um, it's a addiction is a disease of of brain reward. So basically, if you do something and it gives you pleasure, you're going to want to do more of it, and you might get habituated, and then it goes from there into something that becomes an obsession. So, and that is the same with all, you know, all of our pleasurable activities. They all start as something that we do that we enjoy. And then if we do it too much, our brain function begins to change. So I think that, you know, defining addiction is something that's really important as well. I'm glad that the two of you bring up this, this topic, especially when it comes to <clears throat> cultural 
aspects of drinking to begin with. I, I can confidently say that having been in college myself and leading up to college, that was a thing for, for many of us, many of my friends. In fact, one of the caveat that I'll add on to this particular discussion is that at times where you were not seen drinking, you were often the, t- the one that was left out of certain experiences, certain groups, certain perspectives to be shared. And I found that to be one of the most dangerous ones. And I was very fortunate to have had a group of friends who I could still relate to and who didn't judge me for whatever the actions I was choosing to make against certain times of drinking. But I will also say that for some of the people that I knew, that was the only way to get by. That was the only way to feel like they fit in, they belong. So there is there is something, there is an interesting element there. The other thing that I, I like that the two of you brought up is this element of culture, whether it's family related or whether it's according to the nation. I was born in Russia, so it was acceptable to drink at any given hour of the day, breakfast, lunch, <laughs> or dinner. It was, it was almost like a, you know, water substitute at some at some moments of the day. And, and for me, what I found fascinating is like, how do you break that? How do you break that pattern, especially when it's a cultural one? If everything, if everyone around you accepts that behavior, how do you personally take a stance for yourself and your well-being and say, okay, this is not serving me when literally everyone surrounding you is doing the complete opposite? This is, this is the greatest question of all time. And this is what Lizzie <laughs> and I are absolutely devoted to working on because I have been sober for uh, 13 years. So I haven't had a drink in 13 years. And it's well publicized that I am in recovery, a parent in recovery, supporting my child in recovery. But everybody still asks me, why are you not drinking? And there are places, you know, I can't go to cocktail parties during the cocktail party hour because I, you know, holding a glass of club soda is, uh, is always a questioning point. They don't ask you why you don't eat dessert, but they do ask you, why are you not drinking? So um, what we have to do really is to create a new culture, which is the culture of, of um, acceptance of, of uh, sobriety. Um, there has been before uh, before uh, COVID came along. There was a movement that was called the Sober Curious, and the Sober Curious were people who you know gave up drinking. This happens. I think it started in in England. That that happened during the holidays, where after people had felt that they had done way too much binging, that they would um, give up uh, alcohol for the month of January, just to see what it feels like to be not to be drinking. And so many people, uh, <clears throat> so many people were surprised at the benefits of not drinking. Uh, but then COVID came along, and people started drinking again because they were bored, they were lonely, mm-hmm. not connected, and it will it it it's also a problem with seniors because they're alone, and people who are alone or bored or whatever sad, you know, drinking is is, is what we've been doing for you know thousands of years. So we have to create a new culture of a a new and healthy culture. What would you say to that, Lindsay? Mm -hmm. I muted myself. (laughs) I would lead, I would actually take this, that question and lead into, you know, what we've done, because the answer is I, you know, I had the experience of when I got sober, I 
was kind of rejected. Um, you know, it was really, really difficult. And I felt um, very, very alone. And, and so much of our work has been not just to end the stigma, but to help people understand why this happens, how it happens, and how you can actually support somebody in recovery. So, you know, I would sort of take that question and, and say, you know, the, the biggest thing we're working on is to help people understand this um, and break down these complicated issues so that the sober community and the recovery world feels a little bit safer, mm -hmm. um, both for the people in it and the people who might want to explore it. Do either of you find that there's a connection between boredom and addiction? And if so, Absolutely. what is it? There is, there is actually in the recovery community, um, you know, we often use the phrase uh, bored and unsupervised or uh, an idle mind is the devil's playground. There is no question that part of the recovery lifestyle and everything we're pitching is how to take those hours that you used to spend doing whatever you were doing and channel them into a different activity that is positive, healthy, good for you, promoting recovery, because truly boredom will get you in so much trouble. And I believe that one of the reasons COVID has been so brutal is because we, none of us had anything to do. And many of us were not prepared to live a life at home. Now I've worked from home for years. So I actually, I was like, bring it on. Let's see how much <laughs> we can bring into the house. I've got a home gym. My office is a gym. It's a kitchen. It's, it's got like six <laughs> things in here. But, you know, um, I saw some people I know, both friends, relatives who were absolutely crippled. Uh, with depression and emotional issues because of boredom and loneliness. Mm -hmm. I so I, I would say that um, that that um, social social interactions can increase the need for using because everybody around you or culturally they're using. They may be meeting in bars after work, um, but also isolation feeds addiction. So they both do both both boredom and connection or the wrong kind of connection. So what we really work on and help our audience with is how do you get natural highs? How can we replace you know, mm -hmm. those addictions that are, are substances or other unhealthy um, behavior addictions with positive activities that bring on creativity that, that um, increase your curiosity and your creativity and your passion and love for uh, other things other than the feeling that you get when you're drinking or using. So where do we, where do you begin then? How do you, how do you do that? How do you bring in natural highs? How do you get the same level of <laughs> dopamine released? Okay. So, so I'll start this one off. So this is what's interesting. When I got sober, my life got much worse. Um, and that's what a lot of people experience and why, it, why it's so hard. Because often you've got trauma, you've got all kinds of issues. And once you take away the thing that you've been using to cope, you have to deal with these things. So the answer is um, 
you have to start really slowly and you have to start finding new activities, a new lifestyle. And there are lots of ways you can go about doing this. You can always, uh, if, if somebody is really struggling and has a problem, you know, they probably need treatment and professional, a professional to get involved, to help guide them through the process. Where I really come in is I'm a recovery lifestyle expert because I've been doing it for the last 10 years. And I know it works because I've been doing it for the last 10 years. And, and what we really try and help our readers figure out what's going to work, exercise, spirituality, meditation, um, nutrition, all of these things are going to affect our well-being. So if you're, if you really have to look at, you know, if I was getting sober now, or if I was working with somebody who was getting sober now, I would really say to them, you know, the first thing you really need to do is think about what kind of life you want to have. What does it look like? Start to visualize what you actually want. And then you can start to take those action steps. And I am a big believer in if you want to lose weight, talk to somebody who's lost weight. You want to get sober, talk to people who are sober. You want to get a healthy lifestyle, call me. I'll tell you where to start. You know, and it <laughs> may start as simply as take that dog and walk around the block like three times a day, get outside, get into nature. You know, I could give you a list of 20 things. Um, you know, from learning how to cook to learning how to knit. I don't know if that's your thing um, <laughs> to getting into sports and hobbies. And it's when you start to find your, your passions or the things that you enjoyed before addiction took over, that's when you start to feel inspired and you start to feel good about this decision you've made. Mm -hmm. Leslie? So, yeah, I, that is, that's, that's great. So where do you start if you're a parent? Um, is a, another important thing. So one of my uh, addictions was worrying about Lindsay. How could I take care of Lindsay? How could I make sure that she was all right in those years of, 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 of her using? And I became addicted and, and sort of a helicopter parent that wasn't really helping her. So recovery, re recovery is also breaking that those codependency uh, patterns that happen when you're a parent or a family member or a spouse trying to help someone who is struggling with addiction. And here is the, the what needs to be done here is to uh, get your own oxygen first, you know, put on your mask, put on your seatbelt and start looking at what it what what is your part in what's happening here and how can you change? Because you can't really change somebody else. You can only change yourself. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was actually I, I would say that Lindsay was my lifestyle model because as she was going through her recovery, the first thing she said, the first thing I needed to do was to stop drinking, which was very helpful, and then start doing all of the things that she was doing. So when she went to yoga, I went to yoga. When she started her spirituality, I started her spirit, my spirituality. And I think that she was my teacher. She was a teenager, you know, and a, a very young person, but she had the wisdom to, to start saying, I know what I want. I'm going to keep at it persistently until I get it. 
And then she sort of showed me the way. So uh, it never would have occurred to me to do yoga or for me to do Tai Chi or for me to, you know, create uh, recovery workbooks. I mean, I never would have occurred, you know, occurred to me to do that. So it's like if, the, if there is a person in your family who is in recovery and can provide inspiration, well, follow it. But as a family member, the, the first thing that you need to do is to let go of your focus on that other person and turn the focus on yourself. What can I do to be a better person? What can I do to learn better, better behaviors? How can I be more healthy? And uh, so for me, it, it was not thinking about martinis anymore. It was thinking about how do I uh, create um, incredible um, zero proof um, you know, cocktails that the whole family can enjoy? How can we create um, other activities in the family mm -hmm. that will take the place of drinking as, cel as part of our celebrations? I'm curious to hear be before we proceed with uh, some of the other things that I wanted to discuss within this topic. This is maybe a, a beginner question for you, Leslie, and, and I'm curious to hear Lindsay's perspective. Prior to the addiction, I feel like every single set of parents, or not every single one, but it seems like pretty close to that, has a set of expectations for the child. Oh. What were your expectations that you had for Lindsay, and how did those things change after you noticed the addiction? Wow, that's a great question. And this is where parents uh, can, can sometimes get into a lot of trouble. Uh, I think for me, I just, when Lindsay was a teenager and when she went to college, I just wanted her to stay on the path. I just wanted her to continue and get her education. I wanted her to be well enough to get her education. And I, and that actually is a challenge for, uh, you know, it, it, was that the right thing for me to do? I was absolutely insistent, you know, failure is not an option. You must, you must finish high school. You must go to college. Um, you know, I don't know that that is, that was my expectation. Beyond that, I, I felt that once Lindsay was, uh, you know, was graduated from college, she was, she, sh she should and could be her own person. And if she chose to, to um, sell t-shirts on the beach, so be it, that was her choice. But as a parent, I, I felt that, that what I needed to do, what I wanted to do was to get Lindsay through her education. Um, and I was pretty relentless at that, wouldn't you say, Lindsay? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say that. <laughs> I didn't care whether she won an award. I didn't care whether she, I didn't care, you know, my, my goal was I want my child to be healthy and I want my child to get an education. But I think that there are other parents who have higher expectations for achievement and, and we can go wrong when we want too much when we want and expect too much for from um and, and not understanding that that joy play uh creativity are incredibly important at every age you know for me now for lindsay at her age for you at your age your creativity um and it, when you encourage uh creativity in your children your your um you will get mental health better than if you hope for them to be the best tennis player or the best, you know, be on the debate team or, mm. or whatever. It, does that answer your question? Yeah. How did you maintain hope as a parent during those times? Well, I think the difficult times were uh, when Lindsay started going into recovery 
And um, there were some, what, what happens is that when you, when you are a teenager and you go into, uh, and you start experimenting with drugs and alcohol, you stay the, you, you stop development, you stop your emotional development at the age that your addiction begins. So if you're 15 or 16 or 17, and, and I'm not talking about Lindsay, I'm talking about any kid who uses drugs and alcohol or marijuana, they will remain that age. So if you ha now have a 22-year-old who's basically uh, behavior is that uh, ha hasn't developed beyond, um, then you have to learn those, those uh, you have to start over in your learning pattern. And as a parent, you can't make your child learn those things. That is part of recovery, the, the, the taking the steps to um, learn what you may have missed. Mm. And, and those who get caught up in addiction in high school and college, they lose some important years and feel extremely ashamed of that. So if you're 22 and all your kids, all your friends are in law school or they're achieving in great ways, and you're just in your recovery, your early recovery stage, you're going to feel less than, you're going to feel shame. As a parent, parents often feel ashamed of those children. Instead of saying, my child is now in recovery, that's great. What can we do to support that recovery? You know, what can we do to like catch up as a family? Um, and, and so that's the important piece to really understand that you're catching up, that you're mm. playing catching up. And the longer your kids stay in, in uh, addiction or stay in their addiction or their destructive behaviors, the greater catching up gap you have. Mm -hmm. That's why we we are so um, encouraging of parents to get that to get assessed and to get help while your kids are still in high school because they can recover a lot faster than if they're 32 and, and they're still acting like 15 year olds. Speaking of shame and embarrassment, Lindsay, what was the most difficult conversation you had to have with your mom? Um, the most, the most difficult conversations we had, I think, were in those early sobriety years. And then, so we, you know, one of the reasons we thought this podcast was so fabulous is not only have we overcome, you know, addiction in the family and, and we're a family in recovery now, but we've also had our share of difficulties as mother and daughter. And um, we have taken breaks um, to let each other do what, what each person needed to do. So I would say some of the really difficult conversations were early on because, and this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, because I think I, you know, you get sober and you're angry. I was angry. I was angry about a lot of stuff. And I think I felt there was some responsibility with my parents for, um, you know, you get sober and then your parent is still drinking. And I think we had some very difficult conversations around that. And then I think when we, when we found ourselves both sober, but having some difficulties understanding each other, that was also a time we had some difficult conversations. And I give us a lot of credit I really do. Mothers and daughters, it, it can be just the most incredible relationship. It can also be really painful when things aren't going well. 
And we've really hung in there and always had faith that we would both figure this out. So, you know, if this helps answer it, I was so scared of my mom when I was young. I didn't tell her. I kept my, my addictions as secret as I could for a long time. And in fact, I think, you know, I only called her and told her from college when it was absolutely, you know, there was nowhere left for me to go. I, I had to call somebody and get help. And I, I spoke to her boyfriend at the time. Um, he was the one I had to speak to, to explain what was going on. And, and he actually was a doctor and he said, he a psychiatrist, he said, pack your bags, um, do not return to anywhere, just go to the train station, pack a bag and come home and we'll get this sorted out. But and I'd like to, oh, sorry. No, I, I just want to say, here's what's interesting. The conversations I've been the most scared of to have with her are the ones that have gone the best. She actually has taken it incredibly well in the moments where I said, I need help. Um, you know, I'm really, or, you know, when we, separated and then came back together. I said, I, you know, I needed to take care of my issues. And, and she's always been very, very supportive of that. Um, so the, the scariest conversations were taken well. It was the conversations off the cuff where you think, oh, I'm just gonna spill on this and somebody isn't prepared or they don't know what's coming. And that's where things can go very wrong. But, but I think, so I would, I would actually couch this answer by saying, if there's anybody who's listening, who is struggling with something, you really wanna go to the person you need that you're gonna ask for help and prepare them, not scare them, but let them know, hey, I'm coming to you with something. I really, I need some support here because there, there is a responsibility on us when we are asking for help to be accountable, be honest, and really see what we've done um, so that people will be willing to help us. So, and, and today, um, I think we're in really good shape. She can come to me and say, hey, we need to talk about something. And I've certainly come to her and say, hey, you know, in the old days, I wouldn't bring you into this decision-making but there's something going on with me right now. I need to make a decision. I'm gonna share it with you and you can tell me what you think. And that's gone really well. I, I wanna add something to that because Lindsay, you talked about, this is really important. I wanna talk about the part that anger plays in relationships. So I, I think that, um, that people who are struggling with addiction and you know we're not supposed to use the word addicts anymore, but people who are struggling with their behaviors, whether it's substance, or gambling or sex or alcohol, they become very angry. They're angry and, and tend to blame other people. Um, this is a generalization, but tend to blame other people for their problems. And people who are experiencing that anger, let's say a parent who is, who is experiencing the anger of a kid, you're drinking. Well, I'm an adult. I'm allowed to drink. I'm allowed to have my martini every day. It doesn't make me an alcoholic. It, it puts the, the parent on, a, on the defensive. And also it makes the parent terrified of saying anything to your child because that anger coming at you is a wall of, it, it's very, ask anybody who deals with an alcoholic or person who, who has a substance 
problem. They're, the anger that comes at the family members is really scary. They're, they, they dominate and they're scary with their lies and their anger. So when Lindsay went into recovery and she started you know, getting better, my anger was still there. I was angry at what she had put me through. And I think that this is true of all parents and spouses. They're angry because this person got drunk on my birthday. This person overdosed on Christmas. This person did what? What did you say? This person did, yeah, yeah. This person overdosed and is in the hospital and it's New Year's Eve, you know. Um, and it wasn't you, Lindsay. It was someone else in the family. <laughs> but, you know, you as a parent. Pick a number. Yeah, pick a number. You're, you're in a state of anxiety all the time because there's always a crisis that needs fixing. I had a car accident. Um, I almost got arrested. I was on the road on the New Jersey Turnpike and they they trashed my car to find drugs inside. You know, there are all these, you know, all of these things that happen. And as a parent, you're like, you're terrified when the phone rings. You're terrified. And you're terrified that you're gonna lose your child. You're terrified that your child is gonna end up in jail or the hospital. So when your child goes into recovery, and this is true of any family member that goes into recovery, you're still pissed off. Mm. So how do you get over and, and rebuild the trust that you need? First of all, your, your family member who is, you know, or your child who's in recovery is still angry at you, but you didn't do it. <laughs> they did it. You know, you know, yes, I was, I was uh, having my martinis every day, but I didn't make her an alcoholic or I didn't make her a substance user. You know, there was, there's a moment what, what our parents are responsible for creating a, um, a happy home environment or an unhappy home environment. But there is a moment where the child or the spouse or whatever is, is, taking their own or making their own solutions that may be unhealthy. So parents are not responsible, are not responsible when their children become addicts. And, um, and, and, um, and, and so recovery has to be a full-fledged family effort. So the, the person who's in recovery has to let go of the anger and the, and the parent has to let go of the anger. And how do you do that? How do you let go of that anger? Yeah. She's making such an important point that I I actually wouldn't have even thought of. But like, imagine mm -hmm. you get sober and you're angry at your parents for what whatever you grew up with, whatever it is. No family is perfect, not one. And then the parent is angry at you because you've traumatized them for 10 years with your behavior. So that's you know, when we talk about overcoming our obstacle, um, Leslie, my mom and I, like that was part of what we had to overcome, not just the addiction piece, but how angry we were at each other. And I think it's, it's there's this weird shame about this. Um, if your family isn't perfect and there's that stuff in there. So we don't live in a culture where it's very easy to say, hey, we've had some tough times and we're trying to figure it out and this relationship is not easy. And I think that's what we're trying to normalize here. No family deals with addiction and comes out unscathed. Um, 
People are always going to be mad at the addict for the things the addict did. The addict is always going to be mad at the family for the things that they feel the family did. So the recovery, it takes time. And it actually takes a little bit of work and self-awareness and self-help. And I think that's why this is also foreign to people. Because you think, oh, I'm going to send the addict away. They're going to come back and it's all going to be okay. But that getting treatment has nothing to do with the family feelings or the feelings you have inside or how the family is going to feel when you come back. So. And this is why, and this is very important because this is why culturally, uh, culturally people uh, do not like addiction. They don't like the addiction hasn't become a, a cause that we can all embrace because we're so angry. We're so angry at the destruction that this brain disease has caused. It's not my loved ones that's caused this, there has been a, a, a function, a change in brain function that causes my loved one to, uh, to act in a different way. So I have to be, I have to um, divorce that disease from my loved one and be able to say, you have to recover from your disease and I have to recover from my PTSD about the disease. So when your loved one goes to, goes to rehab, all you do is say, this is out of my hands. Now somebody else can take care of this. She's on her own. And, um, and if she comes back and relapses, all we are is like pissed off in, <laughs> and, and angry because it's, it's ugly. It's not like when somebody sends you your loved one to, uh, to rehab, you don't get a casserole from the neighbors. But if your loved one is going to seriously is going is getting, you know, breast cancer treatment, you will get those casseroles. So we haven't accepted um, addiction as part of the American experience, addiction and recovery as part of the American experience. And it is it's also part of the Russian experience as part of mm -hmm. the British experience. Um, certainly Scandinavian countries have a lot of problems with alcohol. It's not, you know, it's not just here, but, you know, 120 million Americans are directly impacted by, uh, by uh, addiction. That's, uh, you know, one in only one in four families is not directly impacted. And for you, Oleg, you know, there are 27 million uh, adult children of alcoholics in this country alone. So what are the, what is the PTSD? What are the, um, the behaviors and the traits and the emotions that uh, need to be addressed for that population, that underserved population? And we haven't been, as a nation, as a nation been doing a good job at that. Mm -hmm. How do people connect with you too? And what do you have coming up that's part of your work? that people can learn and, and be more a part of? Well, Lindsay, you take that. Okay. Well, first, it's always our website. Everything comes back to our website. We have an incredibly robust website. It's reachoutrecovery.com. That's www.reachoutrecovery.com, spelled exactly how you think it would be where we have thousands of original articles that speak to all behaviors, addictions. So the website is constantly being updated with new current articles about whatever's going on. 
And we have a series of books, coloring books and workbooks that are currently on sale for recovery month. September is national recovery month where people in recovery celebrate everything that's going on in recovery. It's a uh, organization in DC sponsors it called Faces and Voices of Recovery. And Leslie has a very big project with a book we have called The Teen Guide for Health that she's gonna tell you about in a minute. But basically we're working right now to get our books out there and help people to understand about the recovery lifestyle, which is exactly what we were talking about earlier, which I really think is the key to maintaining recovery. If you can create a new healthy lifestyle that makes you feel good and keeps you passionate and involved, you're gonna be okay. So that's the goal. And um, Les, do you wanna talk about what you've got going? Cause that's really exciting. Okay, first of all, Lindsay is the author of 100 Tips for Growing Up, which is, uh, which you didn't mention, Lindsay, but tell us, tell us for a second about your book and why it's important and who it's for. Oh, okay. I guess I should pitch the book I actually wrote. Yes. So, Might not be a bad uh, idea. <laughs> yeah. So I started my recovery over 20 years ago. I was a child, um, but I... What we're so passionate about is how to share recovery. Recovery is very expensive in this country, very, very expensive. So I was very lucky in that we were able to put me in rehab. I was able to see therapists and doctors. So 100 Tips for Growing Up is 100 tips that I put together that I consider the best advice I got from the best. So I went to one of the top rehabs in the country. I've seen some incredible doctors, life coaches, and I arranged it according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I created what is a hybrid of a daily reader and a workbook. So there's a tip, there's a note to self, and then there's room to journal. And what we didn't realize worked so well about the book is it's actually a wonderful tool for uh, doctors to use or mental health providers to use with their patients because they can actually see what people are struggling with based on what their, you know, some notes, some tips people are going to be really good at, some they aren't. Trust me, no one's good at everything in this book. So it's, it's become something that is usable by so many people, not just people in recovery. And that's why I didn't use the word addiction or recovery in the title, because this book has worked as well for kids with autism or for people with eating disorders as it does for people in recovery. So I'm really proud of it. There is not one original idea in it. I just compiled all of the best advice I ever got. And now I'm going to put the dog back in his cage. <laughs> so um, I am the author. I, I was a mystery writer be before I became a recovery advocate. So now the kinds of books that I write are for uh, family members and for teen prevention. So my latest book is called The Teen Guide to Health. And it is uh, a very simple guide for teens 
um, what is basically what makes you healthy. And it, it, it teaches, uh, it's 22 chapters, very easy to read, uh, that join together the three pillars of health, which is physical, emotional, and social, and how all of them work together to, be, to make a healthy human. And it basically also shows how, um, how substances impact brain development and brain growth. So it has a lot of different elements in it. And we used it this year in the uh, Florida uh, school system as a, as a pilot program to have kids, have high school students create art projects around uh, the subjects in the book. And we just are about to, um, to announce our winners. So we have six winners who created TikTok videos, um, posters, um, and YouTube videos on what it is that makes them ha healthy, choosing from different um, from different chapters in the book. It it it, it started through uh, some school classes. Uh, one, two of the two of the winners come from the the literature teacher. Uh, one of them comes from the a mental health teacher. Uh, and two of them come from uh, a Rotary Interact Club. So um, it, it basically encourages positive mental health messaging by teens for teens. And we're hoping to create an incredible movement around this, but basically most teens do not know what makes them healthy. So bringing together the elements of what makes them healthy uh, uh, generates um, excitement and curiosity that maybe they didn't have about mental health before. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.